morning, and uh, welcome to week five, although we're still on topic number four. That's the way it goes. Uh, but this week, I hope to make some major progress in, uh, in catching up. Uh, a few reminders and announcements. Um, first, if you have a cell phone and you could please put it on silent, that would be very helpful. Um, second, please remember that next week we start at 9.45. It's 9.45 to 10.45. I apologize for the inconvenience, but I need to speak at Shari Shamayim at 11.05. So I need to make sure that I get from here to there. Um, the, uh, a few upcoming series to note. Uh, as I hope you saw in the email that I sent out, there's a three-parter at Beth Tikva. That'll be on Monday mornings, 10 to 11. Uh, it starts the first Monday in June, which is June 4th. Thank you. Uh, three-parter on superstition, various aspects of superstition. Should be fun. Um, we did a series on superstition here, I think five or six years ago. Uh, if you were there, you don't need to, to go again, because you know, I'm sure everyone remembers everything. Um, but that will be at Beth Tikva. And then second, I hope you saw the flyer that I sent out this week. Uh, every year, for those who, do, who, who uh, haven't seen it before, um, every year uh, for June and July, I try to create a mini-series at Yeshivat Orchayim. That's the boys' high school where my baby drash is based. Um, all year long, we can't have the classes there because, you know, it's a high school. But when school is over, then, uh, then we try to do a series there. So this will be a four-parter on Israel's chief rabbis, clergy or politicians, question uh, mark. And we'll be looking at the careers of four of Israel's chief rabbis. So that will be running from June 20th until four Wednesdays after that. I think it's July 11th. Uh, it'll be Wednesdays, 10 a.m. It is entirely free of charge, um, but I do uh, ask that people register, because uh, that way we can prepare the space properly, make sure that the room is either too hot or too cold, so um, so if you could please do that, I send out the flyer this week, I expect to send out the flyer again, uh, and then finally I also included a note in this past week's email uh, that my baby Midrash is having our annual dinner uh, on June 27th, if people are able to support it, please do, uh, it's what enables all the programs that we provide uh, all through the year. Okay, we have to finish off one topic and move into another topic. The topic we have to finish off is the election of Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Last time we talked about the polarization of responses to the election of Begin, and we talked about the Spartak jubilation, how happy they were, and then we had the horror uh, expressed in 1948 when Begin got involved in Israeli politics and formed his Chayrit party uh, by Hannah Arendt, by, uh, by Albert Einstein, and we, we asked the question of what all of this is about. And what I suggested is that it's because Begin was uniquely ideological. Not that he's the only one in Israeli politics who is ideological. Ben-Gurion was also ideological. But Begin put ideology before pragmatism. And he was not willing to negotiate. He was not willing to, to, to compromise on that on most issues uh, throughout his career. And I think it really scared people. I happen to like much of his ideology. So, you know, for me, I'm very happy. But, uh, but not everybody would have, uh, would have had the same response. We, we tracked his history somewhat, talked about the, some ways in which his ideology was expressed. And I wanted to 
move forward and talk about his religious identity, because that was interesting as well, and then talk about his main political platform. In 1951, he delivered a major speech in which he set out the platform for the Herut party, and you can see the way he translates his ideology and his religious identity into the policies of the Herut party. So, in, in terms of his religious identity, it's fascinating. In July of 1977, uh, he came to the United States for a visit to the White House. So, first of all, he goes to New York first and he gets a bracha, he gets a blessing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The, uh, and then he goes to the White House, he insists that the dinner be strictly kosher, and he eats with a yarmulke, and he recites blessings before the, uh, the food. He takes a stance that this is going to be part of his identity. And perhaps the best known example of it is actually later in 1977, November 1977, when Anwar Sadat comes to Israel. Take a look at source number one, please. This is from Yehuda Avner's work, The Prime Ministers, which I referenced last week. And he talks about the decision made regarding when Sadat will actually come out of the plane. Take a look. A week later, on 28 November, this is the week after the uh, Sadat visit, in an address to the Knesset, the Prime Minister summarized the historic visit and explained why 8 o'clock had been deliberately chosen as the hour for the Egyptian president's arrival at Ben Gurion Airport. He said, quote, President Sadat indicated he wished to come to us on Saturday evening. I decided that an appropriate hour would be 8 o'clock, well after the termination of the Shabbat. I decided on this hour in order that there would be no Shabbat desecration. So this is how the Prime Minister sets up the schedule for this major visit, right, peacemaking for the entire region. Also, I wanted the whole world to know that ours is a Jewish state which honors the Sabbath day. I read again those eternal biblical verses, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and was again deeply moved by their meaning. These words echo one of the most sanctified ideas in the history of mankind, and they remind us that once upon a time we were all slaves in Egypt. Mr. Speaker, we respect the Muslim Day of Rest, Friday. We respect the Christian Day of Rest, Sunday. We ask all nations to respect our Day of Rest, Shabbat. They will do so only if we respect it ourselves. Definitely true. But I think it's remarkable that you're not talking about somebody who was dedicated to observance in all aspect of his personal lifestyle. But he understood its importance for the Jewish state, and he understood its, mo- its importance at key moments. Diane? At this moment, at this time, were, were planes still flying into Ben-Gurion on Saturday? I don't know. But this plane would have been, I think, a special case. But <laughs> the rest of the year, we were still a Jewish state, so we respect this Jewish in that sense. So I think the answer is yes, but I don't know for sure, and so I don't want to say. You think they came in at that time and just didn't go out? Okay. I don't, I don't know. It's worth, uh, worth checking into, but offhand, I don't know. If I get a chance, I'll take a look at it later and in the follow-up email tell you. Okay. Okay. So in terms of, I mean, the, the answer is that, that it has changed. It's gone back and forth over time. I don't think it's, it's, it's been one policy since the founding. But I don't know what was going on at that, uh, at that point in time. But this is, this is the idea. Ben Gurion was, uh, was, was an ideologue also. But Begin 
brought to the table an ideology that was much less pragmatic, and it shaped Israeli government in his era. Um, let's now talk about his national, uh, about his political platform and how it reflects this. So, February 1951, the Khirut Party holds its second national conference. Begin delivers a three-hour Hebrew lecture. Right? Those who have been talking about how they love his rhetoric, right? Ask yourself how you'd feel after the first, you know, hour and a half or so. The, um, but he delivers this three-hour lecture detailing the political ideals and goals of the party, and it's published as a manifesto directing the growth of the party. You can find a translation online um, at the Begin Center website. Um, I actually gave you a link to it in number three, but I gave you two links. Um, the first link that's there is from a class I once gave that looked at this platform in greater depth. Um, and then the second one is to the text of the, uh, of the document itself. But um, what you see here is a manifesto, much of which is directed against Ben-Gurion's Mapai government and its socialism in particular. Um, but also he presents a Zionist vision which is explicitly religious and based on implicitly religious fundamentals. He has this kind of unique brand of, uh, of religious Zionism altogether, in which what he does is he takes his ideals and he shows you how they trace to Jewish religion. He's not looking at this and saying he wants Jewish law to run the state. That's not his brand of, uh, of religious Zionism. Um, but he has a fully outlined vision of the goals of a Jewish government, which others at that time are not willing to broach. Take a look at source number two, where he tells you this is fundamentally a set of Jewish ideas. He says, it is possible to prove that this outlook on life, clarified here in its basic outlines in previous sections, sections of his platform, is an original Jewish outlook. In my saying this, I am not claiming that the good of our outlook on life is solely and exclusively its Jewish source, for without doubt we must also learn from other nations. To learn, not duplicate. But it is a fact that our outlook is nursed on the sources of Jewish thought. The, I added the underline. From the strengthening wellsprings of our national tradition, from the roots of the nation's soul, as it was molded in an amazing war for existence, as the messenger for those near and far, are the ideas of a person's freedom and social reform not embodied in the basic fundamentals of Israel's Torah, in a verse which embodies a complete philosophy because man was created in the image of God. And that's something we're going to come back to because it's a driving force in his ideology, the idea of Selim Elohim, that God designates an image on which the human being is modeled. So let's talk about the platform itself. And again, we're going to do this very briefly because we have way too much that we need to, to discuss uh, today to do it in depth, certainly not the three-hour version. But he has three goals for the Jewish nation. His first goal is individual freedom. And this, again, is part of his attack on socialism. He does not want government control. He does not want the government telling you what you do and when you do it, and certainly control of your, of your finances. He says human beings have to be free, and he articulates three freedoms in paragraph number four. He says man must be free in his thoughts and in his belief. He must be free in giving expression to his thoughts, whether orally or in writing. 
He then says the group of spiritual freedoms is inextricably tied with the group of political freedoms. To be free to assemble with other people, to express the belief that is common to them, and so on. And in our day, economic freedoms represent an inseparable part of the concept human freedom. If not to completely remove from this concept, meaning of human freedom, its real content. He says you have to have economic freedom as well. And that's, again, his attack on, uh, on socialism. And in order to support this, he evokes, again, the idea of Selim Elohim, the idea of being created in the image of God, and therefore I ought to be free. And that's the first part of his platform. Second part of his platform is social reform to help the needy. And here he goes back to Jabotinsky. And the vision that, we talked about Jabotinsky a little bit last week, but the vision that Jabotinsky articulated is very important to Begin. He says in source number five, the positive content of the idea of societal reform is the ceaseless coming together of the social extremes. And here he distinguishes between his version of social reform and socialism. Because socialism also says we want to help the needy. But he says, this is the way I want to do it. Coming together not in the up-to-down direction that necessarily brings general descent and withdrawal, but in the down-to-up direction that brings ascent and progress. Not to take those who have and take away from them, redistribute what they have to bring them down to be on the level of everybody else, but rather to find a way for society to bring up those who are in a lower class. He says, just as it is possible to bring groups together by providing education to those that lack it, rather than taking away from everyone the possibility of acquiring wisdom and understanding, he says, we're not going to make society level by eliminating higher education, since not everybody can have higher education. So too, he says, so one needs to bring together the extremities of the economic sphere and to ensure for those of meager means a constant benefit of conditions for their existence. And he continues on the next side to explain what he wants. The insured provision of basic needs must be fixed as the starting point for every person. Zev Jabotinsky defined these needs as housing, food, clothing, health care, and schooling. Which doesn't sound very dramatic in the English, but you have to re- recognize the Hebrew, and that's why I added in brackets. In Hebrew, all of those begin with the letter Mem. Ma'on, Mazon, Malbush, Mirpam, Melamed. Right? It's the five mems that he articulates the uh, that he articulates here. But he, yeah, it's important to recognize at, at this stage in in Israeli society, no one is moving away from the idea that the state has to take care of everybody. It's not a situation in which you have a pole of socialism and a pole of capitalism, and they're you know at, at loggerheads. They're 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 all following this vision of helping the needy. The only question is, how? And Ben-Gurion is dramatically socialist, and Begin is of the feeling that that's not the ideal. But part of his statement that it's not the ideal is anchored again in Jewish tradition. Take a look at source number six, where he makes a very interesting, what I would call, Dvar Torah, essentially. This is his analysis of what will happen to the class system in the end of days. He says, Israel's prophets and seers, from whom we have inherited the aspiration for justice that guide our repose, elevated visions that are very difficult to realize. There were those that introduced the vision of social justice to repair the world in the kingdom of God. 
right? Lent, repair the world. He gives you the full quote, right? This is always a source of frustration. People talk about tikkun olam, which is very important, about repairing and improving the world. But they neglect the fact that there's more to the sentence. It's letakein olam b'malchut shakai. Right? To repair the world in, as he puts it, the kingdom of God. There's a religious element to it, which he makes sure to, to, to mention. He says, there were those that introduced this vision to repair the world in the kingdom of God, and those that highlighted the vision of world government, and everyone will make one association. A verse, it's quoted in the, uh, the liturgy for, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That gave mankind the vision of world peace. Nation will not raise sword against nation. He's quoting the prophets. However, they did not delude their generation or the coming generations. They admitted that the realization will be difficult, and saw it only at the end of days. They made their vision a sort of guiding star by whose light man wandering in darkness will proceed and find his path and even reach his objective. Their vision is a vision of truth. Because even beyond the historical horizon, beyond the end of days, they did not promise to abolish any difference. Indeed, at the end of days, nation will not raise sword against nation, but even then there will be many nations. And while at the end of days, devouring hatred will disappear, for the wolf will lie down with the lamb, but even then the differences between one species and another will not be eliminated. That's his Torah. He says, there still are different nations. There still are different beasts. There still are different classes. In other words, if one expands the symbolic meaning of the metaphor, the differences between a person and his fellow will not disappear with the desired disappearance of the hatred between them. And this, again, is his drive to say, you can't eliminate classes. This idea of socialism is not going to fly. And he anchors it in, uh, in Jewish tradition. So those are his first two principles. Number one, freedom, which includes economic freedom as well as, as, uh, as well as the other freedoms that he articulated, which were spiritual freedom and political freedom. And he very much believes in raising up the needy through societal reform, but not in attempting to eliminate classes. And third, the supremacy of law. He wants you to have judges who are not above the law. And here, if you take a look at source number seven, that's where he articulates it. The supremacy of law. It's not enough that you have an independent judiciary. But you have to have a law which governs all, and all are responsible to it. And he makes certain to emphasize that this comes from the prophets themselves. I thought I had brought the quote here, but I didn't. But he goes into the point that there was an entire era in Jewish history in which our leaders were called Shoftim. And even though many of them don't seem from the biblical text to be involved in practicing justice, they're more military leaders than they are judges, nonetheless, the fact that we identify our leaders by the term Shoftim, which literally means judges, says something about our value. And of course, justice, justice you shall pursue, and there are many more sources you could bring to support that. So all of this he brings together. And he says, therefore, we need to liberate the land, concentrate the Jewish nation there. And so he says what you see in number eight. And again, this is part of what scares people, because his view about giving land for peace is ideological in origin, and he's not going to give up on it. He says, Israel's historical desires from the day of its exile from its land have found expression in the prayer, renew our days as of old. Right? The Hebrew is? 
Indeed, the prayer enfolds within it the two national aspirations, liberation of the homeland and concentration of the nation once again on its land. Of course, being interdependent, the two historic aspirations of our people who have fashioned its character from generation to generation are in fact one aspiration. And here I underlined, concentration of the nation is not possible without liberation of the homeland. And every stage of liberation of the homeland would be impossible without some stage of concentration of the nation on its land. You have to bring the Jews home. And in order to do it, you need the entire land, he goes on to, to emphasize, and it has to be in Israel. And take a look at source number nine, which I think is just beautiful. He says, from that day, hidden beyond the historical horizon, the origin of the people, and until this day, a process of thousands of years of existence, formation, persecution, and resistance, we have stood against tremendous empires. We have fought, we have fallen. We have risen, we have been struck blows. We have been enslaved, we have rebelled. We have been oppressed, we have been redeemed, we have established, we have been exiled. We have been scattered to the four corners of the world. We have been persecuted from behind, we have been burned on the pyre. We have been nearly trampled out, but never did we concede one grain of our land. There is no example and no model in all of human history for this faith and for this preservation of faith that all the known winds of oppression and slavery in history have dashed into pieces. But who would deny that only by merit of this irregular faith, unnatural, imaginary, almost inhuman, have we remained on the stage? Despite the disappearance without trace of other great and mighty empires, who would further deny that unrealistic faith can be quite realistic in its facts? Who would deny that only by merit of this faith, in fact, have we returned after global wanderings to the starting point that we are again a nation? But indeed, while we become a nation, there are rulers, heretics in Israel, that are prepared to sign in the name of the nation of Israel that Jerusalem and Hebron and Beit Lechem, Yericho, Nablus, Shem, and all the good broad land that spreads forward east beyond the Jordan are not ours but are the foreigners, the invader, the occupier in perpetuity. Is there a political historical crime that compares with this crime? What is the crime of appeasement of Chamberlain in Munich compared to the crime that the heads of the government were about to commit at the expense of the tradition of the patriarchs and the future of the children? Yes. I mean, this is, this is the way he expresses himself, and this is what scares people. Because you notice the religious language also? He calls it heresy. It isn't enough that he says this is politically dangerous. It isn't enough that he says that this flies in the face of practical considerations. He words it as heresy. And in doing so, he's giving it a religious, a religious and ideological element, which is genuine, it's sincere. This is where he comes from. This is what has informed everything he's done since his days in the underground. But it's something that some people have a lot of trouble with on the other side. Yeah. It's very interesting that the, we of the cities in Rome and Jerusalem were actually bought in full money. Yes. They were paid for, so actually that nobody can say that right. even though those kings wanted to give it for free. 
Right. So Ruhamah quotes the comment that Rashi makes, quoting our sages on the Torah, which is that indeed there are three biblical accounts of land being purchased. The, uh, and the comment that they made... This comment goes back thousands of years. Is that the Bible records that we purchased it so that nobody can say that it isn't ours by right. And those three pieces of land are indeed Hebron, Jerusalem, and Shechem. Nabus. Got lucky, right? Three for three. Those are the ones that people are going to give us the hardest time about. That's the way it, that's the way it goes. Diane. No, his comment, heresy to get back land and to come, but doesn't that fly in the face of what he said where he says, Why not? Oh, you mean the? the uh, you mean because they should have the freedom to say it? Right. Oh no, 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 he's he's fine with them having the freedom to say it. Absolutely. Correct. I know he's not taking heresy to the point where he's going to say, and therefore you don't have the right to think differently than I do. You just can't govern that way. His view is that anybody who supports that point of view as a practical step for the state of Israel is is committing violence against the nation and its vision and its history and so on. No, you can you can express them. Just no one no one should agree with you. That's essentially where he is. No, I'm serious. I think that's I think that's what he's saying. He's not banning the socialist party. He's not banning the uh, the parties that say trade land for peace. We don't see him go that far. Stephen. Of course, he's talking about the possession of the land, not the ownership. The ownership meaning. Yeah, no, he absolutely presents the ownership as being in God's hands. That's true. Okay, so that's the that that's our discussion of uh, the election of Prime Minister Begin. And really, there's so much. Whether you're with him ideologically or not, isn't really the uh, the point of the conversation. But the impact that he has at that point in the 70s is very strong. Had you not had the disaster in Lebanon in the early 80s, one wonders where this would have gone. One wonders what the impact would have been. Today, in Israeli government, you don't see this. You don't see this brand from anyone, no matter where they are on the ideological spectrum. You don't see this brand of commitment to an ideology to the extent where it's going to define everything you do. You see coalition promises, you see bargains, you know, you do this and I'll do that. They, um, it's a very different perspective. I'm not saying that government by ideology like this is necessarily healthy either. It may be that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't thrive because it's a bad idea in practice. I like it, but I'm not in government. They, uh, and, and yeah, I, I think that's worth noting. Yeah. It, it really can't work in a cold environment, which is ultimately all government Right. Right. I mean. Definition. If you're going to have a coalition, it means you're going to have to come to some kind of an agreement with people who disagree with you where they would be in your party. Correct. Okay, so we are now...